Now, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Today, we're going to come to the end of the Olivet Discourse, the end of that long teaching section, the final long teaching section of Christ's earthly ministry. And there are so many details, so many nuances, so many avenues that we could take all the way through this that would be good and profitable and interesting, but we've tried to keep it relatively close to the text so that we can keep on with the main themes that Jesus has been developing. Because the disciples are asking a very particular question. Remember that way back in the beginning of 24, they ask, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They know that He is the Davidic King, that He is the promised Messiah. They know that He is going to come in power and glory, and He has led them to the fact that He is going to establish His kingdom. But they want to know when that is going to happen, and they want to know what it's going to look like. And for two chapters, Jesus answers that question first with the signs, the things that are going to accompany His coming, and then as we've looked at over the last several weeks, the timing of it. And what I hope you've come to understand is that when it comes to the timing of Christ's second coming, the most broad answer that we have to get is that no one knows the day or the hour. That the Son will come, but that He will come at a time when it is unexpected. There is going to be a delay, but the delay does not mean a broken promise. The delay does not mean a forgetful God. The delay means that He is being patient while men and women come to salvation, but that there is a time coming when He will establish His rule and when He will execute justice. And so those who are His people, from the disciples to us to every generation until He comes, those who are called His people are called to live in hope and joy and anticipation. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at parables that Jesus used to illustrate that idea of being ready for His coming. If the master of the house knew when the thief was coming, he would be ready. The wise servant is the one who is obedient all the time because he doesn't know when his master will return. As we, turned, as we came to chapter 25, in that parable of the ten virgins, the wise virgins are the ones who prepare for the delay. Because when the bridegroom comes, there's a separation. There are those who are in the feast and there are those who are outside of the feast. There are those who are in the kingdom and those who are excluded out of the kingdom. And last week, Walter took us through the parable of the talents. The idea that the Master has entrusted us with resources and given us work to do until His coming. And how we respond to that work reveals our heart toward the Master who gave us that work. The great difference in that parable was not about how many talents were given to each servant. It's about how the servant responded to the work that the Master had given him. Some showed that they loved their Master by using whatever he had given for his gain. And the wicked servant showed that he had no regard for his Master because he chose to do nothing with what was given to him. This week, we're going to close the Olivet Discourse with a final word, the final portion of that teaching, and it deals with judgment, this final judgment that is coming. The idea that when the Son comes, He is the Son who separates. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read verses 31 to 34 to start us down the road for where we're going today. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, this is what God's Word says. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, we ask, as we always do, 
that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things. Lord, we don't come to this with insight. We don't come to this with our own intelligence. We don't come to this with some kind of uh, intellectual superiority. Lord, we come before the text of Scripture humbly, knowing that these are spiritual things and that they're only understood by the God who has given us his spirit. So, Lord, open our eyes. Pierce our blindness. Shake up our dead, often lazy hearts. Drive us toward obedience to rightly responding to this king who is and who is coming again. We need your help to do all these things. And so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, judgment is a tricky thing for us as a culture. Uh, we live in a culture that is wide, that is tolerant, uh, a place where truth is relative. In fact, you are allowed to believe just about anything you want to believe as long as what you believe doesn't make anyone else feel badly about what they believe. One of the biggest insults that can get thrown at someone, in fact, something that destroys people's careers, is to call them intolerant, bigoted, closed-minded, or unaccepting. And the great tragedy is not that people call names and hurt feelings. The great tragedy is that our culture has crafted a Jesus that conforms to our culture rather than moving our culture into confirmation with what Jesus has called us to be. The Jesus of the West, and sadly the Jesus of Western Christianity, is increasingly a Jesus who only speaks words of love and affirmation. Sure, there's a God of judgment and a God of justice, but you might have even heard it before. That's Old Testament God. The one who is all wrath, all black and white. Now Jesus only calls us his friends. And it's sad because rightly understood, Jesus is those things. He is love. A love that is truer and stronger and more powerful than we can even imagine. He is patient unendingly patient with sinners like you and I who, although we know better, continue to fall and continue to fail. But Jesus is not love at the expense of truth. In fact, love at the expense of truth isn't love at all. He is not grace at the expense of justice. Grace at the expense of justice only enables violence and abuse, and that's not good. The reality is that Jesus is love and that Jesus loves enough to warn. The fact that Jesus spends as much time as he does talking about hell and judgment. And by the way, there are more verses of Christ speaking of hell and judgment and what is to come than there is about him speaking of heaven and what is to come. The fact that he does that is an act of love. It is an act of grace and mercy. And so as we come to the end of this chapter where it talks about the things that are going to come at the end, there's a warning. And it's a serious warning. It's a sobering warning. But the fact is that this is a warning that is covered in love and mercy because he calls on people to the reality of what's going to come and he shows them that there is a way, a path to blessing rather than judgment. He gave those parables that called his disciples to be ready, to live in anticipation and expectation. And this is why. This is why we must get these things sorted out now. Because the Son is coming, and when He comes, He comes in glory, and He comes in judgment. So what we're going to look at first is we're going to look at the glorious Son. This exalted Son when He comes. In verse 31, 
in particular as we start, we're going to be reminded of the splendor that is His. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. There's a delay. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. But again, the delay is not a broken promise. The delay is not a sign of a forgetful God. The delay is God's patience and mercy. That is so important for us to remember because although there's a delay, He says the Son is coming. It's not if the Son of Man comes in glory. It is when the Son of Man comes. And when the Son of Man comes, the Son of Man will come in glory. When He came the first time, He came just as the prophets foretold, but He came in humility. He came in poverty. He came in obscurity. A nowhere place in a nowhere town. He lived His life in relative obscurity. He lived it in humility. The God who made everything, the King of Kings, was tired, got hungry, was argued with. He was clothed and covered in humility. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see that peeled back for just a moment, that glimpse of His glory, but that's really as much as there was in His earthly ministry. We're entering in, well, we're slowly moving through the Passion Week of Christ, and by the end of this week, Christ is on the cross. The one who spoke creation into existence is going to be handed over to sinful men and he's going to be mocked and he's going to be beaten and he's going to be killed. His entire earthly ministry is characterized by humility. He rode in Jerusalem, the king into the city of kings on the back of a donkey, humble, exactly as the prophet said. But when He comes again, He comes in splendor. That humility is gone for good. And when He comes in glory, He brings all His angels with Him. And all the angels are going to come with Him. And again, we've been paying attention to Matthew, so we know this isn't the first time He said that. Way back in Matthew 13, when we went through those kingdom parables, we saw that the angels come when the sun comes. And those angels participate in this gathering and in this separation. All of this is so integral, so tied in to His coming again. And when the Son comes, then He will sit on His glorious throne. When the Son comes, that is the time when He sits on His glorious throne. It's not just a throne. It is His glorious throne. Jesus is not coming to establish His kingdom and sit on a throne in the hearts of a few redeemed men in an otherwise sinful and fallen world. There is a throne coming where the Son will be established in His glory for all the nations to see. Just like Daniel, just like Ezekiel, just like the Psalms, just like the other prophets prophesied, uh, this verse contains some important foundational truths that we can't get too far away from. Because after all the birth pains, this seems like a long way away. After all the persecution and the trials, this seems like a long way away. After all the deception from the false Christ and the false prophets, after all the death and all the suffering and all the tribulation that is different than at any point in human history, this seems like a long way away. But the Son is coming in power and glory, and the Son is coming to rule on His glorious throne. Not to potentially rule not to make his final argument and hope for the best, not to challenge the nations and take what he can get. He is coming to sit on his glorious throne and his coming is going to be unmistakable. His glory is going to be unsurpassed and his authority is going to be absolutely universal. And that's what we see as it comes next when he does this separation. When he comes, there's a separation that only he has the authority to do. Look at verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. When the Son comes, the idea that judgment comes with Him has been woven into all the parables that we've seen over the last several weeks. The delay in His coming motivates us toward a right response 
Because when the Son comes, He will rightly judge. And just like His throne is glorious and His reign is universal, His authority is universal. He has the authority to gather all the nations. Every tribe and every tongue and every people He will call to Himself because He owns every tribe and every tongue and every people. You and I know about judgment. And when we talk about judgment and when we talk about justice, we think of it in terms of jurisdictions, of circles of authority. The police officer has jurisdiction in his city. The elected official has authority over their district. We can think of judgment as it relates to the Supreme Court that has the ability to define matters of law for the entire United States. There are even international courts that exercise some authority over different bodies of nations and over particular crimes. But you have to understand that there is no one on this earth with this kind of authority. There is no body, no person, no group of people on this planet who have the authority to gather everyone before them for the purpose of right judgment. But He does. He alone has the authority not to just command a people, but to command all people. Not just a nation, but all nations. And when He does, He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. The purpose of gathering them together is so that they might be separated. And not separated based on nationality or language or any other reason that we separate nations. You and I gather and you and I can separate and you and I can classify nations by any number of things. And we do it all the time. We classify nations based on population, based on economic impact, based on military strength. None of that matters here. The Son has the power to judge and separate based on the heart. No alliances here, no treaties, no sense where some group of nations can come together and decide that they are going to opt out of this coming judgment. The Son has the universal ability, the wisdom, the power, and the right to gather and to separate people. And in this picture of judgment that's to come, we get a glimpse of what is waiting for those who find themselves on either side. The first group that he identifies is those that he calls sheep, those who are on his right. And we're going to see that these are the ones that are gathered, we'll say gathered to splendor. These are gathered to glory, to blessing, to beauty. They're brought together for the purpose of entering into the splendor of the king. And he starts off in verse, in verse uh, 33. I'm sorry, verse 34, by talking about their reward. Like verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've got to break that apart a little because verse 34 is fascinating. Verse 34 starts with, Then the king. We've been talking for a long time. I was reminded this week as we were driving to and from Mexico by several kind high schoolers in our car that we had been in Matthew for a while, two and a half years, and they were breaking down exactly how few verses that was every week, and it was all very encouraging. Um, (laughs) You remember, because we've been in Matthew so long, and because the banners have been up for so long, that the main theme of Matthew is the king and his kingdom. Matthew has established the fact that Jesus is the king. He opens with a genealogy of the king. He repeatedly refers to prophetic promises that say that this is the Messiah, the one who will sit on David's throne. Jesus has explicitly taught that He is bringing in a kingdom and by extension, a kingdom is ruled over by a king. But you have to realize that this is the first time in the entire Gospel where Jesus has referred to Himself as the King. He's been the Son of Man. He's been the servant. 
He's been the son of David, but even as he looks forward to his coming, he refers to himself as the king, the one with the right to judge and to separate. And at that time, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. This group is gathered to blessing and they are blessed by the father. The son and the father are united in their purpose for these people who are his. And that blessing anticipates them inheriting the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a tremendous thought. There is a kingdom inheritance prepared for those who are called God's people. We know of earthly examples of people who were born to inherit kingdom power. We know about people born into the right family, into the royal line, who will one day inherit tremendous power. But no one is going to inherit a kingdom like this. Every kingdom on earth has its boundaries. Every kingdom on earth has its limitations. Every kingdom on earth has its beginning and has its end, not this kingdom. And who is Jesus talking to? In this context, he's talking to his disciples, tax collector, fishermen. Nobody's from nowhere. Who are the people that Christ calls to himself? They're just people. You and I, sitting here, who are called disciples of Christ, those of us that are rightly related to God, look forward to the inheritance of a kingdom. Do you ever stop and think, who am I to deserve that? There are not many powerful and prominent people here. And if that comes as a shock to you, I'm sorry. I'm not meaning to humble you here. Uh, You might be important in a sphere. You might have a certain degree of power at work. You might have a certain degree of wealth that you call your own. But in the grand scheme of things, who are we? We're a breath. We're a vapor. We are limited and we are finite. And yet God has called finite fallen humans to be his sons and daughters and heirs to a kingdom. I certainly hope we're never able to fully get our minds around the wonder of that fact. And the idea is that this is not a last minute change. God does not call you and I sons and daughters. God did not call those disciples. God will not call these people at the end of the age into his kingdom because... Well, he had to find someone and there was nobody else better out there. It says this kingdom reward was prepared for his people before the foundation of the world. Before Adam breathed his first breath, the kingdom promises were secure. Before God told the birds to fill the air, the fish to fill the seas, the water to separate from the land, the darkness to separate from the light, he knew his children and the kingdom that he would call them to. You ever think about your salvation in the scope of eternity? That God knew you before you knew what life was? God knew his children's faults. He knew his children's failures. He knew that you and I would never run after him on our own. He knew that you and I on our own would never search for him. We would remain continually locked in our rebellion and our rejection. Sons and daughters of hell and rightly so. And still he saved us. And he called us his own. Your inheritance was prepared before you took a breath. How comforting that is because there are those of us today 
who have failed in spectacular fashion. And maybe in those times when we see the weight of our sin, we come to the place where we wonder whether God will still put up with us. Or whether that was the last thing that maybe finally separated me from what I thought was my inheritance that I had. Now, God does take sin seriously, so seriously that the Son died. But the kingdom is not secure because the sons and daughters hold on so tightly to the king. Our inheritance is not secure because you and I managed to get the best grip possible on it. We are secure because he holds tightly to us. We are secure because he never fails, not because we don't fail. And that's going to be important to remember because this group of people is going to be commended for their works. They are going to be praised for how they responded. But it's not that response that earned them the kingdom. It never belonged to them because of anything they did. But if you look at verse 35, you can see their response, their outward response that demonstrates their heart. Look at verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. They demonstrate their relationship to Christ by their response. See, salvation is never simply an inward feeling, an inward thing. A remarkable, dramatic change does happen internally. A dead heart is brought to new life in Christ. There's a total transformation of the heart of a person at the moment of faith. But that internal transformation always brings external response. And those who are on the king's right, those who are called blessed of the Father, the ones for whom the kingdom has been prepared, they have demonstrated the reality of their salvation through their obedience. And he mentions things that are practical, that are real needs. Food, drink, hospitality, care when they're sick, care when they're in prison. These are all things that show a reliance on the help and the kindness of others. And while the needs themselves are easy to understand, what's confusing is that Jesus says, not that you did these things, but... You visited me. He puts himself in this. And so in verse 37, they ask a great question. Then the righteous will answer him. That's another name that he gives them now. They've been blessed by the Father. They're called the sheep, and now they're called righteous. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? See, they didn't do these things because they thought they were doing them directly to Jesus. They didn't see them because the king was there and they said, well, because he's here, we'll do what's right. They did them because that's what changed hearts do. So when Jesus says these things to them, they're surprised. There's a really beautiful humility here and that they don't come to the foot of the king preparing for entrance into the kingdom with their resume there. They don't come saying, these are the list of the hundred nice things that we did, so we must have earned our passage into your presence. They simply did what changed hearts do. Like the servants with the talents. It was their joy to be about the business of the Master. They lived out what the Gospel had done in their life. And their response shows their humility. And then Jesus responds to them and shows the reality of what they did. Look at that reality in verse 40. And the King will say to them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, 
you did it to me. Jesus said I was there because as you were doing this to others, you were doing it to me. Well, what others is he talking about? He says, truly I say to you, as you did this to the least of these. And some people kind of stop there and they make this a passage about caring for the poor in general. The least of these becomes the weak and the outcast and whoever can't meet their own needs. And there is a a goodness and a rightness in caring for the needs of others. We're not arguing that. There is a, a, a calling on believers to love those who cannot care for themselves in a practical and meaningful way. That is a good thing. But Jesus is very specific about who he's talking about here. He says, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. He's not talking about just those in need. He's not talking about the poor in general. He's talking about fellow believers in need. As much as you did to the least of these, my brothers. As much as you looked out for the least, the most needy, the most hard-pressed fellow Christians, you did it to me. Now, why is that important? It's important because we remember the context that we're in. This is not just a warning tacked on to the end because Matthew had to put it somewhere in his gospel. What is he talking about? He's talking about the time that precedes the coming of the King in glory. And in that day, there's going to be trouble. Do you remember that? There's going to be famines and earthquakes to an escalating and intensifying degree. There's going to be persecution and hatred even to the point of death. A great tribulation such as the world has never seen and never will see again. These are the days that Jesus was talking about when He said, if those days were not cut short, then no one would survive. That's the physical context that these people at this judgment are living in. The worst time in human history. A time when human suffering will be at an all-time high and opposition to the Gospel will be at an all-time high as well. And yet we know that during that time there are going to be thousands upon thousands who come to faith in Christ. Revelation 7, John writes, makes that absolutely clear. So so the implication is that these precious saints have ministered to the needs of fellow believers at the most dire time in human history. When the needs were great and when the resources were few, they gave what they could. Although it might cost them their freedom, although it might have cost them their lives, they demonstrated love to the others. Those who had no opportunity, no ability to repay their kindness. So it's really important to see who he's talking about and what they did. There's another thing in that verse that I want to spend just a minute on, and that is the idea that Christ is identified with his people. It's another one of those little details that should probably never stop shocking us. The idea that Christ is not ashamed to be identified with his people. Those poor, needy, imprisoned believers, he calls his brothers the King of kings, the Son of God, the one with the right and authority to rule all the nations. He calls the weak and the outcast His family. It's not the first time that He's done that. Back in Matthew 10, you remember that Jesus is preparing His disciples to go and do the work of ministry, to preach the Gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in Matthew chapter 10, He says, Whoever receives you receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. He did that to receive his disciples is to receive Christ. To love his people is to love him. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is telling his disciples what greatness in the kingdom looks like. And he puts a child in front of him. And he says, truly I say to you, unless you become like this little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not unless you become a child, not unless you become childish, but unless you come with a humble childlike faith, 
you'll never enter into the kingdom. And then in Matthew 18, verse 5, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Not just whoever likes kids must be a Christian, but whoever loves those who have faith like a child loves me. The author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 2.11, that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And I don't think that that shocks us like it should. Because you and I are pretty careful about who we associate with. We know that eventually the reputation of the ones that we surround ourselves with becomes our reputation. High schoolers know this. Middle schoolers know this. If you hang out with the weird kid, you become the weird kid. There are times when my family is not particularly excited about admitting that I'm related to them. Maybe I'm dropping one of the kids off at school and I like the song that's on the radio and I'll roll the window down for just an extra second so that they and their friends can hear me sing the song. In that moment, they're ashamed to call me their father. You ever think about the fact that the holy God who created everything who has never failed, never faltered, never sinned, who in Him there is no darkness, in Him there is no speck of dishonesty, is not ashamed to call you and I members of His family. And as much as I know my faults, and as much as I know my failures, He knows them even more. He knows every thought. He knows every intention. He knows every sin that I even manage to hide from myself and convince myself that I'm really doing right. And still, he is not ashamed to be identified with his people. And so Jesus can rightly say, to love my people is to love me. To love the body of Christ is to love Christ who is the head of his body. So when the Son comes in glory, with the authority established over all people, when the Son comes to execute judgment, He is going to welcome these, His people, the sheep, those on His right, into His splendor, into His glorious kingdom. Because they've been cared for and characterized by their love for one another. But what about those to His left? Those that He has identified as the goats. Well, they're also gathered, but they're not gathered to glory or splendor. Uh, those are gathered for the purpose of suffering. They're gathered to suffering. And when the sheep inherit splendor, these anticipate, first of all, the idea of fire. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To the sheep he says, Come, be with me. These, he says, Depart, go away from me. They have no place. They have no part with the king and his kingdom. They do not belong in that company. These are the ones that the various parables have illustrated. These are the ones without proper clothing for the wedding and are cast out. These are the ones who had no oil and were shut out of the wedding feast. These are the ones who did not make proper use of the king's resources. The king is going to gather for judgment, but only his people are called to his side. The idea that all roads lead to God, the idea that every faith takes you to the same place, the idea that every belief is a good belief, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, 
is a satanic lie. And it is a lie that has eternal consequences. Depart from me, you cursed. If the ones on his right are called into blessing, these are called into a curse set apart for the purpose of judgment. They have just lived, again, in the context. These will be ones who have just lived through what we rightly call the Great Tribulation, the, one, the, the, the time that is the most terrible in human history. And to those on his right who have come out of that time of suffering, they enter into the splendor of the kingdom and their time of trouble is over. You realize that these ones who have come out of that terrible time and are now called in front of the king now enter into something much worse. That great tribulation will be far better than what they face for all eternity. That is a sobering thought. And they're going to be cast into the eternal fire. The separation into judgment is one of fire. It's a picture of pain and torment, and it's eternal. It is not ending. Everyone who ever lived will spend eternity somewhere. And those who are not blessed of the Father, those who are not gathered into the kingdom, will see the, re- the uh, reality of eternal torment and separation from God. And that eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. That like the kingdom was established, so too was this place of judgment. There had to be a place of torment prepared because angels don't experience salvation. You realize that? There's no salvation offered to fallen angels. There was no hope for Lucifer's restoration when he rebelled against God. Again, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus does not offer help to the angels. He offers help to the children of Abraham. Angels have no atoning sacrifice. Angels have no redeemer. Angels have no stand-in to bear the weight of their sin. They lived in the presence of God. They saw the glory of God. And when they rebelled, they knew only the perfect justice of God. That's why I think as you read through Genesis 3, that that idea that that there would be a head crusher that would redeem Adam's children, it's so shocking because it's so unlike what the angelic beings could ever experience or understand. And so there was a place set aside reserved for their eternal judgment. And now all those who refuse to acknowledge the Son, all those who refuse to come to the King on His terms, there is nowhere for them to go but into that same place. They have made the same determination. They have made the same decision. They have moved in the same direction as those angels. And there is no covering for those who will not come to the king in the way that he demands. It's a place of torment with no hope of rescue or redemption. And they demonstrate that that is appropriate by their failure. Their failure demonstrates that they were only fit for judgment. Look at verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. What's the defining characteristic? What is the defining trait of a disciple of Jesus Christ? In that upper room in John, he tells him, a new commandment I give to you that you do what? That you love one another. By this will all the world know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These demonstrate that they are not disciples because they do not love. 
And just like the redeemed, they're quick to question him in verse 44. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Notice they call him Lord. At this point, there is no questioning who he is and what his power is. They don't come to him and say, who are you to make this determination of us? No, they say, Lord, where were you? What are you talking about? Surely if you were there, we would have done what was right. Lord, if we knew it was you... Lord, if we knew who you were, Lord, if only we could have seen your glory and your power, certainly we would have responded rightly. What does he say? Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You had no desire to minister to my people, no desire to identify with my people, and so you showed that you had no desire to minister to me or to identify with me. You had no love for my brethren, so you had no love for me. Very much like what Walter said last week. This is not the lashing out of a king who just loses his temper. This is not uh, a temper tantrum by a petty king given to an unsuspecting, unwarned people. They miss the kingdom and they go into judgment because they refused to do what the king demanded of his people. They demonstrate through their actions or really through their lack of action that they had no interest in what the master had called them to do. Jesus ends this entire discourse, this whole long teaching section, with a simple statement that deals with the future. The future for both groups. He does that in verse 46. He says, and these, still talking about those on his left, still talking about those who are called goats, and these, these will go away into eternal punishment. That is sobering and that is difficult. And that might even be uncomfortable for you to think about but it is not unclear. Bookending this warning is the idea that this punishment is eternal. Maybe he doesn't mean that. Maybe maybe now that they see, there's a chance for them to make a better choice. Maybe there's going to be a time when they're just done away with. That's not how the Bible describes what is coming. It is not how the Bible describes eternal life in either perspective. There's urgency to this life. There's urgency to this life because it is brief. Whether it's 70 years or 7 years, this life is short. There's urgency because it is unknown. We don't know how long we have, either in this life or until the King comes again. And there is urgency to this life because how we respond to Christ in this brief finite period of time determines where we spend eternity. These will go away to eternal unending punishment. But he closes by going back to those on his right, those who are called the sheep or blessed by the Father. And he says, but the righteous into eternal life. What does it take to inherit eternal life? It takes righteousness. How much righteousness? How good do I have to be to inherit eternal life? Well, he kind of answered the other side of that question back in Matthew chapter six, or back in Matthew chapter five, as he was talking about the scribes and Pharisees. He said, "You know the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who are the most externally obedient, the ones who are the most externally pure, the ones who are you to think about righteousness. You would say they surely are righteousness." He says, "Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. What kind of righteousness do you need to enter the kingdom more than you have?" 
You need to be better than the best example, purer than the most pure you can think of. You need a righteousness that you simply cannot get on your own. Well, where's the hope in that? If the righteousness is demanded to enter into the kingdom, and if I cannot possibly, although I would work my entire life to get it, bring enough righteousness into that equation to earn the kingdom, then where's the hope? And the hope is the gospel. That is the foundation of the gospel message. God demands a righteousness that you fail to provide, and so God provided it on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That great gospel exchange that Christ took on your sins so that you might be clothed and covered and found with His righteousness. God is not unjust when He brings anyone into the kingdom. God does not lower the standards of the kingdom so that He might fill it. He keeps the standard of perfect righteousness, but He places the perfect righteousness of the Son on fallen people. And then He calls them His own. They do good things. That is true. They love others well. They feed and clothe. They visit them while they're in prison. But they do those things not to be righteous. They do those things because their hearts have been radically transformed. They do those things out of a love for God that was first placed on them. Judgment makes us uncomfortable. And yet Jesus talked a lot about judgment. Why? Because love tells the truth. Because the reality is that love warns. You all know about the health saga that my wife has been on over the last two years. And that all started because one day her doctor said horrible things to her. Her doctor said, I don't like what I see in this scan. And then an oncologist sat across from Brandy and I in an office and said horrible things to us. He said, you've got cancer. And he said, there's some things about your life that are going to be forever changed. And there's going to be surgeries and your life is going to be really hard in all of these ways coming up. Would it have been more loving for her doctor at that initial appointment to say, well, I don't want to ruin her day. I'm sure it's nothing. She'll be fine. Would it have been more loving for that oncologist to sit across from us and say, you know, this is no big deal. You guys are young. You got a family. Enjoy yourselves. It'll probably be fine. Don't even worry about it. That would have been despicable. It would have condemned my wife. Christ warns because he loves. Love speaks about judgment, love talks about hell. Not in an arrogant way that says we will rejoice as the world burns. Not in an arrogant way that says we have figured it out, let them figure it out for themselves. But love warns because it recognizes that we deserve judgment as much as anyone else in the world. We preach about these things because we know that some will hear that through 
the warning about what is to come, that God will use that to change hearts. And not because of the power of the messenger, not because of the cleverness of the speaker, but because the Lord knows His sheep. Because the kingdom was prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. Because as He delays, He does so because He is not willing that any of His children should perish, but that all will come to salvation and repentance. Three quick things for us to think about. First of all, does the end matter? Very easy to say yes. There's a lot of things over the last couple of chapters that we could spend a lot of time arguing about, discussing, debating, uh, the finer points and nuances of eschatology and the study of the end times and all the systems that go through it. And I would have had a great time and there would have been encouraging and edifying conversations. I am sure of it. But the thrust of this passage we have to see is not to prove a particular system. I think there are some that provide much better answers than others. That is absolutely true. But what matters more than anything is the fact that Christ is coming again. And what you do with that truth has eternal implications. You are either going to live your life right now for the sake of the Master, for the sake of the King and His coming kingdom, and you are going to live in readiness and anticipation, and you will anticipate blessing as He comes, or you are living your life right now for the sake of self. You might do a nice thing every now and then because it makes you feel better or because someone is watching. You might come to church because you think it's the right thing to do or because someone made you. You might even serve in various capacities because it's expected or because you think there might be something to all of this. But you know in your heart that you are not rightly related to this King. So I'm asking you, does the end matter? Does the fact that Christ is coming ever enter into your thoughts? Because while today might look a lot like yesterday and a lot like tomorrow, there will come a day when there are no more days. Either through your death or when the King gathers you to Himself. What have you done with the Son? Second, how do you love? What a great practical way to end talking about how do you love those that Christ is identified with? How do you love the body of Christ? Do you love the body of Christ? Do you invest yourself for the least of these, his brothers? It's one of the reasons why we say that it is so important to gather together. Why church is not a long-distance electronic thing. I recognize there are valid reasons for not being here on any given Sunday. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about are you known by your investment in the body of Christ? Perhaps it's time to rekindle or rethink that. And finally, who have you told? Who do you love enough to warn? We love our children enough to pull them back from the edge of the street, don't we? To keep the fork out of the light socket? Do we love people enough to warn them about hell? Or are we more concerned with feelings? More concerned with maintaining the facade of relationship? One of the things that Walter said last week that I thought was just fantastic was that we are not called to success. We are called to faithfulness. Well, that person won't listen. 
I don't have the right words. They're too far gone. We don't have a strong enough relationship. You're not called to success. You're called to faithfulness. We are called to preach the gospel and then allow the work of the gospel to change hearts. The best preacher in the world, which I am not, never changed one heart through their sermon. Not one. The most gifted evangelist never saved one person from the fires of hell. Not one. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. It is the power of God through the work of the Spirit that uses the gospel to penetrate dead hearts and bring them to new life in Christ. All we are called to do is tell the truth. Because that is love. So who have you loved? Let's pray. Lord, there's enough over these last two chapters to keep us busy for a long time to occupy our hearts and our minds, uh, to sharpen us, to confuse us, to bring us to humility as we confess that there are things that we still struggle with. Lord, may it be enough that we are convicted about being about the king's business until he comes. Lord, find us faithful. Remind us that although we don't know the day or the hour, that the king is coming again. That although life is brief, there are eternal consequences to the decisions that are made to the responses that are given. Lord, I pray that there's no one within the sound of my voice that has not come to the realization that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that salvation is found in no other name. And Lord, may we be faithful to preach that gospel until you call us home or until you come to get us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.